You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. The Old Testament book of Exodus, and I would invite you to open your Bible uh, to chapter 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. And as I say most weeks, uh, I would invite you to take that out, open it up to the second book of the Bible so that you can see where we are and so that you can follow along in the scriptures as we walk through this passage this morning. The ultimate goal here is not to hear what Mike says, but to hear what the Lord says as we unpack his word. So I invite you in uh, all the ways to uh, explore with us as we listen to his voice this morning. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8 and going through the end of the chapter, the Holy Spirit writes to us, the people of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Father, this morning, would you simply bless the reading and hearing of these inspired words. Father, when we encounter the scriptures. We hear your voice. I pray, Father, that it wouldn't simply be with physical ears that we do so, but that your Holy Spirit would work in such a way in this place among us this morning that our spiritual ears would be opened and we would be attentive to what you would say to our minds and to our hearts and that your Holy Spirit might work to conform every person here this morning to the very image of Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as I prepared this week, I could not stop thinking about the classic training montage that appears in so many action movies. You know what I'm talking about, right? The hero seems to be down for the count, whether it's Rocky or Mr. Incredible. But then the music starts. It starts very low and then it builds, right? The music is almost the key to the training montage. Right? And then suddenly, like you can picture it, I know you can. Out of nowhere, Rocky develops this newfound resolve, right? Defeat is left behind. Yeah! Yeah! See, that's what it makes you want to do. All right, you can cut it. We're good. (laughs) So, what typically would last weeks or months is compressed into the length of this song that gets you hyped up and push-ups turn into lifting boulders. 
a light jog, oh man, that quickly becomes a marathon at full sprint while pulling an F-150. <laughs> and then drinking protein shakes leads to drinking blended fish guts. And whether or not that actually helps you get stronger, you watch it and you go, I need to drink fish guts. <laughs> right? So the hero is being prepared for the ultimate challenge. And the very best training montages make you want to take on the ultimate challenge too. There is a reason that... Mike yelled out when that song started. Somehow, some way, it just energizes you. Well, as we continue to walk with the children of Israel through the wilderness from deliverance to the destination of Mount Sinai, this morning we want to talk about wilderness warfare tactics. And I want you to put yourself in the training montage. You may be sleepy. You may be weary or weak or tired for many, many reasons this morning. But I want you to picture yourself here in this place being trained and built up and prepared to face the everyday battles that await all of us as followers of Jesus. I want you to picture yourself alongside Rocky in the Siberian wilderness. Rocky IV. <laughs> if you need to hum Eye of the Tiger to yourself while I preach, I will do my very best to keep a straight face. <laughs> so the text tells us really a couple of things this morning that we want to look into. Number one, you and I are going to face battles in the wilderness. That is inevitable. Notice how this scene begins in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now Israel here is still camped at the place where we saw them last week where water miraculously came from the rock. And this mysterious people called the Amalekites, who are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, launch an unprovoked attack on these newly freed slaves, not six weeks out of Egypt. Now, we're not told why. It could be because they want the water coming from the rock. It could be that they think it somehow has magical powers because God's divinely provided it for the Israelites, and so they've come to take it. Whatever the reason, they simply come out of nowhere, and they proceed, as the author tells us, to fight with Israel. Now, what you need to understand is that this is really a small skirmish in a larger battle, really a larger biblical war that's been going on since Cain and Abel. The devil has long tried to destroy the people of God in order to prevent the promise of Genesis 3.15 from becoming a reality. To prevent the promised rescuer from coming into the world through God's people of promise. Now that the rescuer has come, we who live on the other side of his life and death and resurrection, we also, like the Israelites, will encounter spiritual enemies. Now, no longer do we fight against flesh and blood like the children of Israel did. Instead, our enemies are spiritual in nature, but they are nevertheless real, very real. And the enemy has now set his sights on Christ's bride, his body, his people, you and me. We are engaged in an all-out spiritual war that is constantly raging both within us due to remaining sin and outside of us due to the influence of the world and the demonic influence of dark spiritual forces. 
And we have to wrestle with these things. We have to recognize that there truly is fury on all sides as we seek to make our way through this wilderness world. Because truthfully, those dark spiritual forces can no longer touch the Lord Jesus. And so they've set their sights on us. We're going to have to contend with the devil's deceitful schemes. We're going to have to wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil that are active in our world. We're going to have to stand against their assaults. We're going to have to deflect the flaming arrows of the evil. And very often these attacks are going to come, for the most part, in the midst of everyday life. Spiritual warfare, though it is a cosmic thing, and though it involves powerful dark spiritual forces, for the most part it takes place in the stuff of your everyday life and mine. And it's going to come relentlessly between here and there, between deliverance and destination. Not not only are we inevitably going to face spiritual attacks, very often the enemy is going to come when we least expect it, or rather he's going to come and take advantage of our weaknesses. I want you to notice what Deuteronomy chapter 25 says about this particular scene. In verses 17 and 18 we hear, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were what? Faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. The Amalekites saw an opening and they took it. Remember how when the children of Israel left Egypt, they actually left armed for battle, according to the text. But God said, I'm not going to take them the way of the Philistines because they aren't ready for war. These aren't trained soldiers. These are liberated slaves, for goodness sake. And so the Amalekites take advantage of them. And they roll around to the rear and they cut off their tail. They go for what? The most vulnerable, the women, the children, the elderly. Isn't that often how the enemy works? Doesn't he often attack us when we are vulnerable? Doesn't he often attack us particularly when we are physically vulnerable? Man, how hard is it to fend off spiritual attack when you are sick? When you are in pain, when you get hungry and certainly before you know it, you're hangry, right? Listen, in Matthew 4, 2, a text that we've looked at throughout this wilderness journey, when did Satan come to tempt Jesus? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was what? Hungry. He was weak. He was ripe for the kill, you and I might say. So not only are we, like the Israelites, going to face spiritual attack, but it's often going to come in the midst of weakness. And here's the reality. You and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have to armor up and fight. Now, If you've been with us throughout this journey, you know that God could have easily sent a plague to wipe out the Amalekites, right? You know that God could have easily confused their army as he does with an army later in biblical history, right? You know that God could have wiped 
out the Amalekite army just as he did the Egyptians at the Red Sea, right? In fact, there, what did Moses tell the people but this? In Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Not six weeks later, Here in this particular scene, the Lord's servant Moses calls Joshua to himself and says, find some men and fight. Under the command of Joshua, they're told to engage in the battle. Look, at this point, God expects Israel to take up arms. He expects them to go into battle. Now, if we understand the context, we'll understand why. The Israelites are still in the wilderness, and this isn't a food test like the three previous ones, but it's still a test of faith. When God calls them to armor up and go into battle, the question is, are they going to trust the Lord even as they fight to fight on their behalf? God expects no less of you and of me. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, which is probably the most well-known passage in the New Testament on spiritual warfare, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, and listen particularly to the commands. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Stand. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Don't go to sleep. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The reality is you and I are going to encounter dark spiritual forces as we make our way through the wilderness. They're going to often attack us when we are weak or where we are collectively at our weakest. And the call of the scriptures is to stand in the strength of the Lord and to fight. Y'all ready for that training montage yet? When you and I do encounter spiritual battles, this particular text has three things, I think, to teach us about how we engage the fight. The first is this. When you and I encounter spiritual battles, we must listen closely to the voice of the Lord. Now, this is the very first time in the whole Bible that we are introduced to Joshua. And he's given no sort of fanfare introduction, which essentially means the people reading this knew exactly who Joshua was. Eventually, as you read further into the biblical story, you'll find that Joshua becomes Moses' successor. And the victory that he wins here for Israel on the battlefield actually foreshadows 
his ultimate military leadership role over Israel as they cross the Jordan, enter the promised land, and take what God has already given them. Now notice exactly what Moses tells him to do. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Very simple command. And verse 10 tells us, so Joshua did as Moses, the servant of the Lord, told him. Joshua obeyed. Joshua, before Joshua could ever lead, Joshua had to learn to follow. That's how it is with every leadership role in the kingdom of God. We, we cannot lead until we learn to follow the voice of the Lord. We cannot adequately stand against dark spiritual forces unless you and I submit ourselves to and become attentive to the voice of the Lord. When you and I encounter the enemy on the battlefield of life, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.17 that the word of God is our essential offensive weapon against the devil. In other words, if you and I are going to go toe-to-toe with the spiritual forces relentlessly coming against us, we're going to have to saturate our hearts and our minds with the scriptures. Fighting the devil is first and foremost a battle to believe truth over what? Lies. After all, Jesus himself in John 8, says that the devil is the father of what? Lies. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, with each consecutive temptation, he fought back with what? The scriptures, the sword of the spirit, with truth over lies. For the whole history of the church, the strategy of disciples of Jesus has been the same. By reading and rereading and rereading and rereading the Bible, we are taught to think like Jesus and we are able to detect with the Spirit's illumination the lies of the enemy. Now, I might want to flip that around a bit and say, by having the Bible read us, and reread us, and reread us. The Bible uncovers the lies that you and I have already bought into. Unless you think you are immune from that, there are things you believe, things that I believe, that are lies straight from the pit of hell, and without the Spirit's illumination, you and I wouldn't even know it. without the word of God exposing those things, without us humbling ourselves before Christ and asking him to use the scalpel of the word to search our hearts, we would be lost. We would succumb to lies rather than counteracting them with truth every time. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I've said this before, and it bears repeating. If your only diet of the scriptures is the meal that I feed you on Sundays, you are woefully equipped to deal with the lies of the evil one. Woefully equipped. There 
are six other days in the week. We're only here for an hour and 15 minutes. There are over 150 other hours where the enemy's got opportunity to speak into your mind and into your heart. Good gracious. Pick up the sword, friends. Immerse yourself in it. Let it dwell in you richly. Some of our fiercest everyday battles take place in our minds. What you think about will shape what you believe. And what you believe will ultimately shape how you live. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us to renew our minds. A renewed mind leads to a transformed heart. Allowing the story of God found in the scriptures to reshape our imaginations so that we see the world through a God-shaped lens rather than a worldly lens is essential. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I what? might not sin against you. When we hide God's word in our hearts and we harness it in the battle for our minds, it becomes a formidable weapon against the devil's schemes. Hiding God's word in our hearts helps us learn what the voice of our king and commander sounds like. And on the battlefield, that's everything. If you and I don't understand, we aren't, we aren't close to Christ through his word to the extent that we understand what his voice sounds like, we're going to be exposed again and again to the whispering schemes of the devil. In a sense, life on the battlefield is all about which voice you're listening to. And if you're not regularly listening to God's voice, chances are when the moment of decision comes, you won't be able to hear it. So when those battles come, we need to listen closely to the voice of the Lord. We also need to learn to lean on others when we get weary. Now notice where this text goes. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Moses took the staff of God, the staff with which he had performed all these mighty works in the presence of Pharaoh, in order to release the Israelites from captivity. He took the staff up on top of the hill, and the text says in verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, it's singular, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Perhaps he was switching the staff back and forth. So they took a stone, and they put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Friends, Moses needed help. Moses knew that the battle was the Lord's. Moses knew that the key to the battle was not necessarily Joshua's skill or the amount of military might that the Israelites had. Moses knew that the key to battle was found in the nation of Israel looking to God even as they fought to fight for them. That's why I went up onto the hill and held the staff aloft. Now, y'all, I don't know about you, but it is a strange thing that the battle went well as long as the staff was here and it went poorly as long as the staff was here. What's up with that? Why did the position of Moses' hands matter so much? Are you ready for this? I don't know. All I know is that it did. 
And here's the point. Moses, the great servant of the Lord, could not hold the staff aloft by himself. He grew tired. And Aaron and her, who some say was Moses' brother-in-law, tried all kinds of different strategies. Let's put a rock underneath him. And then when that didn't work, they held up his hands themselves. Hebrews 3, which should by now be a familiar place because we've been here for the past three weeks. We've gone back to this place because of the writer of Hebrews' commentary on Israel's wilderness journey. Immediately after quoting Psalm 95, which is key for understanding what happened in the wilderness, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firmed to the end. Friends, sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we falter. Our strength dries up. Our faith feels like it's running on empty. We need help. We will not make it without one another. That's what this text teaches by implication. We will not make it unless we hold firm our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus all the way to the end. How do we make it all the way to the end? By exhorting or encouraging one another. You and I are tools in the hands of the Redeemer to help one another make it all the way to the finish line. God has designed it this way. Weary and worn out from, from bearing the one ring to Mordor. Now, it's been a long time since the Lord of the Rings illustration. You're welcome. Frodo, the courageous hobbit, falls to the ground on the slopes of Mount Doom. If you've seen the return of the king, you know the scene I'm talking about. He is exhausted and he is ready to give up. He talks about the veil of shadows being gone, about being able to see Sauron with his eyes. He knows that he is near and he's ready simply just to give up and give in. But Sam leaning over Frodo, ever the loyal friend, says to him, do you remember? I can't carry the ring. Finish it. There you go. But I can carry you. He picks him up and he carries him on his back up the slopes of Mount Doom. Moses is God's chosen servant who bears the staff of God, but he cannot bear it aloft alone. It's just not in him. You and I need friends who will tell us unapologetically, courageously, and with tears in their eyes, brother, sister, you are believing lies. You and I need friends who are unafraid to tell us when we are right on the edge of making shipwreck of our lives. Better yet, we need friends way back down the line who look at us and go, if you keep walking this way, you're going to make shipwreck of your life. If you keep disobeying the voice of the Lord, you're going to sear your conscience and one day a day is going to come when you're not going to be able to hear it anymore. Friends, that's dangerous. We need friends who will come alongside us and tell us also the Christ-centered truth about ourselves when we are trapped in the enemy's lives. 
We need folks to remind us who we are. That our fundamental identity as believers is as a son and a daughter of God, not as a slave to the evil one. We've been set free from that. We need friends who will pray for us when we cannot pray for ourselves. Man, those friends are important. We need friends who will believe for us when we cannot believe ourselves. We need friends who will bear courage for us when we are full of doubt and fear. We need friends who will remind us that Jesus is the answer when we've got nothing but questions. We need friends, real ones, who will do as the writer of Hebrews says, who will exhort us to keep on keeping on to the very end, who will, if necessary, hold up our weary arms. This is one of the things, as your pastor, that I'm probably going to champion more than any other. This is why we have small groups. If you're not a part of one, the list is on the back of the sermon notes. Join the fight. Get some friends. Those kinds of relationships are essential. Do you have them? Ours is increasingly a lonely culture. Most of us in our 40s and 50s and beyond probably don't have those kinds of relationships. If we do, chances are we've had them with a small handful of people for very long. And when those people move or when circumstances kind of lead them out of our lives and we grow apart, we don't replace them. It's really sad. You can't live like that. I can't live like that. Get some battle buddies. You need them. I do too. Finally, when we face these spiritual foes, as we listen to the voice of Christ and we lean on others when we're weary, we must look to the risen king who has already won the war. Now look at how this scene closes. Verse 13, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now, why in the ears of Joshua? Because of the role that Joshua is going to have. Joshua in particular needs to remember this victory as he leads the people of Israel into the promised land. He needs to remember that God is for them and not against them, that God is ultimately the one who will fight on their behalf. So God says, make sure Joshua hears these words that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And there in that place, Moses built an altar of worship, a place where they could remember what God had done, where they could call again upon the name of the one who had fought for them. And he called it Yahweh Nasi, N-I-S-S-I. The Lord is my banner. In a battle, a banner is a standard. A banner is a flag. A banner is a visual cue that all of the troops can look to and should look to in order to know what to do. In ancient warfare, you didn't have modern communication devices. So someone would hold a banner aloft that would essentially signal troop movements and orders across the battlefield. And so you looked to the banner, to the standard, to know as a, as a troop on the battlefield whether you should move to the right or to the left or to move forward or even to retreat. It was a rallying point. It's the sign by which an army stands firm 
However, and this is one of the most fascinating things about this text, the banner to which Israel looked was not on the battlefield. Where was it? On the hill. Held aloft by Moses, the servant of the Lord. In the weak hands and the faltering hands of an exhausted 80-year-old man, the banner of the Lord, the staff of God, was held aloft, representing the power of Yahweh and the presence of Yahweh to save his people and to fight their enemies. Now, as I've already mentioned, what, a, what an unusual and surprising way to wage war. Right? What an unusual and surprising way to call the attention of God's people to their banner. Our banner is no less unusual. It's also made of wood. And it also stood upon a hill. We look to the empty cross of the king of the universe who was crucified in utter weakness for the salvation of the world. There upon the hill called Golgotha, the hill of the skull, in spite of all appearances, God was winning the war against the forces of evil. Held aloft by a beam of wood. A bloody, beaten, exhausted warrior. Seemingly lost in order to win. He died in order to defeat death. And then three days later, he arose victorious. He came forth from the grave as the victorious king over his enemies and the enemies of his people. As I said earlier, the forces of darkness can no longer touch the king of all kings. The risen king, once dead, but now forever alive, he is our standard. He is our rallying. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul begins the passage in Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare the way he does. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, in the Old Testament... God's name is Yahweh. And in your Bible and mine, the name Yahweh is always or typically represented by Lord in all capital letters. It's because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that's how it was translated. Every time the name Yahweh was used, they replaced it with the Greek word for Lord. Now, when the New Testament refers to the Lord, who are the writers talking about? Jesus. Stand strong in Jesus Christ and in the strength of his might. When you and I go into battle, we are to put on the Lord Jesus. We clothe ourselves in Christ and all of his manifold perfections. That is what it means to put on the armor of God. When we go into battle, we need eyes to see Jesus. We need eyes to see our triumphant king standing head and shoulders above the enemy. 
standing tall and victorious and rallying us to himself in the midst of our weakness and our weariness. When you and I read that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and we picture ourselves armoring up, we don't need to think about those implements of war apart from thinking about Jesus. The Lord Jesus is our belt of truth. When we clothe ourselves in the Lord Jesus, we put on the very one who is truth. He is the one who exposes the devil's deceit and brings the devil's schemes to nothing. He is the one who enables us to see through the devil's lies and to walk in truth. The Lord Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. Our actions and our motives are filthy. In effect, we are unfit to go toe-to-toe with the enemy of our souls because in and of ourselves, we are fundamentally unrighteous. Which means when he accuses us of sin to the face of our Father and says, these people deserve to die, apart from Christ, he would be what? Right. He would be right. But... I love that word. It's such a good and powerful and important biblical word. But you and I belong both body and soul to the one who is right. To the one who declares us to be right. Therefore, Our hearts have nothing to fear from the evil one who could otherwise accuse us. You and I can stand against his accusations because of who Christ is for us and because of who we are in him. You and I have the ability when the enemy accuses us to say, you are exactly right. Thank you for reminding me why I need Jesus. Thank you for reminding me what Jesus has done for me. Would you like to talk to my king? Right? The Lord Jesus is our footwear. We're often guilty of trying to stand on our own two feet. But y'all, there's no firm footing in my shoes on the battlefield. There's no firm footing in yours either. Thankfully, we wear the sandals of the king who has already crushed the head of the ancient snake. And we take our stand in the good news that our enemy's fate is sealed. That it's a done deal. That he is gasping for breath, bleeding out the neck, and one day he will be no more. Why don't you tell him that? Why don't you remind him of what's to come? Probably going to make him angry, but that's okay. We take our stand before a bleeding dragon who knows his days are numbered. The Lord Jesus is our shield. When we trust in his promises, you and I are protected from the flaming arrows of the evil one. When we trust his promises, we throw water on the doubts and the fears that the evil one would hurl in our direction. The Lord Jesus is our helmet. The battle for control of our souls takes place where? We've already talked about it. In our minds. Our thoughts and our imaginations are an ongoing theater of war. The good news is, 
that Christ aims to be king over every part of our lives, including our minds and our imaginations. Because he has set us free from slavery to sin and to the devil, we can, as Paul instructs us, take every single thought captive and make it obedient to the Lord Jesus. And then finally, the Lord Jesus himself is the word of God. He is the sword of the spirit. Look, there is a reason, y'all, that the book of Revelation depicts the risen, reigning, and returning Lord Jesus with a what coming out of his mouth? A sword. Because he himself is The Word made flesh. This is why we must allow the Word of Christ to dwell in our hearts richly. The King goes on the offensive against our spiritual enemies through His what? Word. So you and I are going to face spiritual battles in the wilderness when we do We must listen closely to the voice of our Lord. We must lean on companions who can exhort and encourage us when we're weary. And we must look to Christ. He is our banner. He has already won the victory. And no matter what battles we face, we have the power through Him to stamp on the head of the snake. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word speaks timely truth into our lives. God, I have to imagine right here, right now in our midst, there are people fighting for their lives. There are people, Lord, who in all kinds of different ways, are engaging with dark spiritual forces in their hearts and in their minds, and they are they are swimming for dear life. They're just trying to stay afloat. They're exhausted. They're weary. They're tired. They're just about to give in to the deceitful promises of sin. And Lord, you brought them here this morning to say to them, don't give up. Don't give up in. Don't lay down. Stand. Stand in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand clothed in His armor. Stand. Stand by reaching your hands to heaven and saying, Christ, I need you. I will be defeated without you. God, I pray that those folks would come and seek prayer with one of our prayer team members this morning and that you would strengthen them through it. God, I pray for that individual here this morning who's far from you, who's been living for themselves for years, perhaps even decades, but who recognizes this morning, right here and right now, that they've been captive to the lies of the enemy and they want to be set free from all of that. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are victorious king. As they cry out to you this morning, I pray that you would save them and set them free. Make them your own. Engage them in the fight. Give them spiritual eyes to see the truth about themselves and about you as we sing. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for all you've taught us today. In Jesus' name, amen.